Welcome to the Criterion Chat, a podcast dedicated to discussing those titles chosen by the Criterion Collection for Preservation. I'm Nate Myers, joined by Matt Peterson, as we discuss Punch Drunk Love over some healthy choice chocolate pudding. In the wake of his critical triumphs with Boogie Nights and Magnolia, two sprawling dramas featuring large casts and a multitude of plot lines, Paul Thomas Anderson subverted expectations by making his inaugural film of the 21st century a short comedy featuring Adam Sandler. Casting the mainstream movie star as Barry Egan, a lonely and violent novelty toilet plunger entrepreneur, Anderson plunges his audience into a surreal, hypnotic, and intoxicated love story fittingly titled Punch Drunk Love. Set in L.A., the film veers between drama and comedy as it thrusts Barry Egan out of his isolation into the unlikeliest of romantic liaisons with Lena, played by Emily Watson. As these two fragile figures begin their courtship, their relationship is threatened by the demented Dean Trumbull, enacted by Philip Seymour Hoffman with dastardly zeal, and his team of corrupt phone sex line operators who threaten to extort Barry or reveal his past sins. Punch Drunk Love leverages its leading man's screen persona in an effort to create a truly original love story. Collaborating with cinematographer Robert Elswit, composer John Bryan, editor Leslie Jones, and abstract artist Jeremy Blake, writer-director Paul Thomas Anderson crafts a unique, one-of-a-kind movie with unexpected insights and ideas. Released by the Criterion Collection on DVD and Blu-ray in 2016, this surreal feature from 2002 finds itself equipped with a beautiful transfer and a collage of supplements to round out the viewing experience. Join Matt and me on our quest for love in a rage-filled world. So Matt, uh, this particular uh, film, this podcast, I am not prepared specifically to have a certain agenda of what to say. I have always loved this movie, and uh, I saw it on its opening day in October of 2002. Uh, It was actually the very same day Paul Wellstone, the senator from Minnesota, died. Hmm. Uh, I recall very clearly. Uh, I I did two different movies in the theater that day. Uh, There was The Ring, that Gore Verbinski American remake that had just recently come out. I went and saw that in the morning. And then in the evening, I went uh, in a very heavily rainy day to go see this at the Pavilion Place Theater, which no longer is in existence. Uh, And so saw it that evening at a packed house. It was only showing in that theater in the Twin Cities at that particular point in time. And I walked out of it just absolutely enchanted uh, by this film. I don't know. I I know you've seen it. I don't know that we've ever really spoken about it, to be honest. Uh, But I don't know what thoughts you have that you want to bring to this right away. I'm just going to kind of be free-flowing on this conversation here. Because I think that's the only way to really approach this movie. I don't think you can approach it with too much structure. Because it is such an off-the-wall kind of film. So what are your thoughts, your initial ideas or impressions you want to share about Punch Drunk Love? Yeah, I, I... I'm surprised that uh, it's been 16 years already since this movie was made. I feel like it was uh, more recent than that, I guess. Um, Well, I I guess my first thoughts on this film are just how much of a contrast this is to Paul Thomas Anderson's previous work. Uh, I've always enjoyed this film, too. I I think it's it's a really delightful, uh, very enjoyable uh, what seems like a fairly light film from a conceptual standpoint, but it's pretty hard hitting. I mean, there's there's some uh, pretty heavy material in this movie that that's packed into its ninety minutes. Uh, I remember being being very struck at how short it was because uh, you know Paul, Paul Thomas Anderson, of course, is known for very lengthy Altman esque ensemble pieces, especially coming off of Magnolia, which was. Uh, just a film I respect a lot, but it's a bloated film, you know, and there's, uh, this was definitely, uh, clearly an effort to say, okay, let's, let's tailor it back and let's, let's really boil things down to 
what amounts to a short breezy story in in Paul Thomas Anderson terms. Uh, but it's uh, it not only reframed his own um, filmmaking, uh, and, and not even in terms of just length alone, but also in content and genre. Uh, but it also took a, a very well-known comedian, uh, Adam Sandler, and did the same for him. And so I kind of look at this film similar to uh, Bill Murray and what happened to him with Wes Anderson. You know, taking someone that's kind of known for for screwball comedies and giving that actor some real dramatic weight, some gravitas that we hadn't really seen before. And unlike Bill Murray. Uh, Adam Sandler has not continued in that vein with future projects, which, which is too bad because he, he does really a great job here. Uh, but just I, on a higher level, it it's a film that I felt like was very charming, uh, was very creative, uh, was very touching and, and powerful and moving. I do think it spills over a bit into being too precious or... Uh, a little too pleased with itself at times, but you know it's it's a very refreshing piece of work and and one that I have revisited a few times over the years. So um, I, I think I initially did see it on disc. I, I, I don't recall seeing it in the theater because, as you mentioned, it had a pretty limited release, and unfortunately, it didn't do very well at the box office. So it kind of came and went uh, pretty quickly. It's a shame it never really got much of an audience. It didn't really get much of a critical audience either. It just sort of has disappeared. If people talk about Paul Thomas Anderson's filmography, this doesn't get mentioned. Uh, Magnolia does, Boogie Nights, There Will Be Blood. But uh, this one's sort of forgotten, right? And it definitely does stand out. It is the anomaly in his films. It's by far the shortest. Uh, It's the only comedy he has done. And, of course, comedy maybe... not uh, the typical term, right? You, you say, oh, we're watching Adam Sandler comedy. You show people Punch Drunk Love, they're going to be thinking, what? <laughs> uh, either good or bad, they're going to be thinking, what? Uh, so, um, yeah, this is this is a film that for me, well, certain films uh, operate on you, I think, on an emotional level, right? Mm-hmm. Some on an intellectual level, some just kind of, for some reason, they just speak to your heart. This one's a film that has always spoken to my heart. And it's one that I've always sort of treasured as a little gem uh, for myself. And it goes back to, yes, that first time I saw it, uh, the experience of seeing it in the theater and seeing it with a full house was very fun and it was just exciting. And I love the cinematography. I, I love the way they accomplished the visuals of this film. We can get into that maybe a little more later. Yeah. Uh, but I've even just enjoyed being able to share it with people over the years here because it is so out there. In so many ways, uh, it is light and fun, and also it deals with a man who's horribly, horribly depressed, and at any moment could maybe t- turn around and break somebody's neck. Right, mm-hmm. so it's such a bizarre thing to try to make sense of. Right, uh, I've taken up a couple of different times. I showed this movie to people. Uh, one time, I was showing it to a couple of friends. This is probably about five years after the film had come out. And they had not seen it. And that scene where uh, it's the it's that scene where Lena and Barry are in Hawaii, and they've obviously had uh, their time together, and they're in bed, they're having their pillow talk, and they start talking about wanting to smash each other's faces. Right? <laughs> uh, it's just this horribly violent imagery, but it's somehow so tender, and it's so loving. <laughs> it's it's uh, it's kind of I remember watching it myself when I first saw it. I go, I know I should be disturbed by this, but I'm not. And I remember showing this to my friends, you know, five years after the fact. One of them is a, just a guy who just nothing phases him. Jim is his name, and you know the scene is playing out, and the, I just remember this word coming from the other side of the room when, after Adam Sandler says, "I want to smash your face in with a sledgehammer." <laughs> uh, him going. What the fuck? <laughs> yeah, it's like, it's like for a movie to get Jim to say that is something, right? So, uh, so that's one experience of it. Uh, the other experience is I, I had a, just a date with a girl that I just absolutely head over heels love, and uh, when I showed it to her, 
uh, as I was showing it to her, uh, she, that scene came up and I remember again, like that kind of silence came into the room <laughs> as that scene played out. And she started to laugh and go, this is really weird. <laughs> I just thought, <laughs> you know, yes, it is weird. But I think that's what the movie's going for. I think it's going for the weirdness of love. And that love does kind of just have a intoxicating nature to it. And it does have sort of a unexplained power and sort of something you grapple with. You don't necessarily fully understand. You don't do it perfectly. Uh, you make mistakes. You learn. Uh, you try to grow. You try to grow within your own self. You try to then bring that out to the people that are around you. You try to make changes in your life. That's what I see this film really being about. Mm-hmm. And uh, that's why I think it works so well because it's not afraid to be completely weird. Whereas so many romantic comedies do everything possible not to be weird. Uh, they make it so formulaic. You go, well, love never plays out that way in a relationship, right? Love never plays out that way in real life. When people fall in love, it gets weird. And they do weird things and they do stupid things. Uh, and then if you have broken people like this does who fall in love, like Barry is a very broken man, um, it's naturally going to be bizarre. Uh, and he's not going to be fully equipped how to handle it. But you see a, such a hopeful kind of progression that happens for him in this, uh, so beautifully symbolized by the harmonium that just falls out of nowhere in the beginning. Like there's that car crash that's totally unexplained, never gets mentioned again, and a harmonium just dropped right in the middle of the street by his work, and then the people drive off. We never find out anything about what that was about. But that harmonium becomes the symbol for the film, and I think it's a symbol of love uh, because you know he's got to patch it up. He's got to learn to play it. He doesn't even know what it is at first. He thinks it's a piano. And then it's later explained to him by Lena that it's a harmonium and that he starts trying to play it. And at the very end, they're playing it together. Mm-hmm. It's That's, you know, to me, the the just this wonderful genius at work in this film. And, you know, am I being a little punch drunk in my own approach to this movie? Probably. But it just works for me. And I just find everything about it so delightful and wonderful to think about and talk about and watch. Yeah, the film's ultimately about, as you said, two broken people, right? So, I I mean, that pillow talk scene is kind of, it's a nice microcosm of the film that, you know, they have their own love language, right? And these are two people that were were lost and and they found a connection with each other. And it may, to all outward appearances, seem weird or even unhealthy, and, and maybe it is to a degree, but uh, they they have found something meaningful and... And yeah, the harmonium is, is a metaphor for, uh, for his desire to improve his life and to find those connections and make those connections, even though he's very reluctant to do so. Um, I, I have to mention his sisters, <laughs> the, the scene where, All seven of them. oh man, I mean, it's no wonder that, that Barry is the way he is. I mean, just that scene where he goes to the birthday party and it's just holding on that shot of him coming in and out of the front door a few times. And, and he's just like, am I going to do this or not? And, and you hear the sisters in the background talking about him and you know what he's in for before you even meet the sisters or see the sisters. And what a great scene. I mean, it's just, uh, in it's probably like a two three minute scene, and you understand completely why Barry is the way he is, or, or the, at least the, the kind of influences he's had to deal with his whole life, and and it's so or layered. He snaps at his sister later on, right on the phone, right? He snaps at the sister, yeah, because she won't give him the number, yeah. and you get like, I get why he snapped, yeah, I get it, yeah. But I, I mean, just even that the birthday party scene, it's so layered, it's so. It's such an elegant, elegantly delivered scene, I think. You know, it, it's very naturalistic. It's very chaotic. But every line that comes from every sister and every character is, it just comes at the right moment. And, and the timing is perfect. And, and you just, you understand uh, his situation. You understand uh, what... Um, what he's contending with. So of course it's punctuated by him kicking out the, the plate glass uh, doors there, which I, I've always find extremely hilarious. Um, 
Yeah. And their reaction, right? There's yeah. this, that, that silence and then, <laughs> what the fuck, Barry? <laughs> and then him talking to is that his brother-in-law or something uh, who's a dentist asking for mental help. Uh, just really a great, uh, a great sequence. Very funny, but has really a dark undertone to it. And I, I think that's what strikes me about this movie a lot is it is very funny. It has levity to it, but there's a real darkness running throughout this whole movie and, and you feel his depression, you understand his depression and his isolation. And it's, it makes the movie almost uncomfortable, uh, in many ways at times. And, and, you know, you look at Adam Sandler kind of transplanted from what he usually makes into a movie like this, you know, his performance is great. It works very well. But if you look at his performance, it's not that different from something like, uh, you know, Happy Gil- Happy Gilmore or Water or Barry Matt or what was it Billy Madison? Uh, uh, Happy yep. Gilmore in particular. I, I mean, there's another character where he was kind of this mild mannered, caring sort of guy, punctuated by extreme violence and profanity, and that's pretty much the way he is here. And I, I think Paul Thomas Anderson was kind of harnessing that that persona and wanting to transplant it into a new context. And, and it works really, really well. Um, but it, it, this film, yeah, it's a very quirky movie, right? I mean, there's a little quirks here and there. I mean, him selling bathroom, you know, themed plungers. I mean, what, what, yeah, how can that be a viable business? But apparently, <laughs> only in a movie like this could that be a viable business. And, and of course, Luis Guzman, his face is amazing in this movie. Just his expressions, uh, reacting to what's happening. Uh, so there's he's wondering about that guy in Toledo. What guy in Toledo? <laughs> <laughs> and and there's just an amazing sense of momentum here too. So a, a lot of the techniques that that Paul Thomas Anderson is known for in his previous works and kind of the kinetic, uh, editing and camera work. And that's put to, to different use here in a way that's really compelling and, and pulls you in. Uh, so, I mean, one could say that, um, Paul Thomas Anderson's very, uh, owes a lot to Scorsese when it comes to that, that sort of, uh, cutting and, and the very quick tracking shots and dollies and, and things of that nature, and, and that's used quite a bit in this film. But at the same time, it's very much his style and his stamp on on comedy. Uh, so, yeah, yeah, the film's contrast between light and dark, I think, is something that always sticks with me. You know, it's hard for me to look at this as just a comedy uh, because of that dark undercurrent, and that really can't be ignored here. And, and I think that's an important aspect to explore especially in a movie about love i mean there's there's going to be dark times in any relationship and and it's about weathering those periods and i think that's depicted very well in this film too so even though they um their relationship is budding and it's called punch drunk love right they're they're kind of in that infatuation stage and i think you could say by the end of the film they're not necessarily even through that infatuation stage because they're uh, Lena says, you know, here we go. Um, their, their romance is really just starting at that point, even though they've kind of been through the thick of it to a degree. Uh, so uh, yeah, the film is aptly titled and, and you hope that, that the two of them make it. But I, I always felt at the end that this was maybe a relationship that was, maybe doomed, but I don't know. I, and maybe that's the pessimist in me, uh, saying that, but at least they'll, they'll have those moments that they've shared together. And, and as an audience member, you're, you're hoping that they make it. Uh, but you know that there's probably going to be challenges ahead. Yeah, certainly that would be the case, right? This is not necessarily one where you could say, Oh, yep. The wedding bells are right around the corner at the end of it. But you do end with a sense of hope, right? Even if this relationship wouldn't work out for them, you get, especially for Barry, he has found something about himself mm-hmm. and he has learned something about himself and he's, he's reached out. Uh, you can think of this, I, I, the film I actually most would associate it with is Taxi Driver. 
Surprise, surprise. Yeah, that's uh, that's a good comparison. It, it, both are Travis Bickle, Barry Egan, both are very lonely, isolated men with a lot of rage within them. They both find a woman that they become wanting to be the protector of. They want to keep her safe, right? I mean, there's a lot of similarities here. The difference is that Travis never quite gets out of his loneliness and of his isolation. He never really breaks out. And Barry does. And that's where you see a hope in this because of how he confronts uh, the Philip Seymour Hoffman uh, character, which let's maybe go into that little subplot uh, in this movie, right? Early on, Barry, an act of loneliness, calls a sex hotline uh, and winds up uh, being scammed then, right? They take his personal information. They wind up uh, coming, sending goons to L.A. from Reno, uh, to beat him up and take money from him, right? Uh, and Philip Seymour Hoffman, sort of the, just the bizarre slob that sells mattresses by day but runs in the back of the mattress factory, a phone sex uh, <laughs> operator. System. Somehow, ma- uh, somehow mattress salesman seems to fit that. Somehow that all works, that. by yeah. the way. Yeah. <laughs> I know it doesn't sound like it should, but it does. Uh, and he's just brilliant in that per- performance. Uh, but you know the way he confronts him, right? It's not the Travis Bickle killing spree, right? He comes to him saying, "That's that, right? You know, tell me that's that, right? And then I'll let you go." And so you see, he, he makes uh, he stands up for himself. He reconciles something. Uh, he reconciles his past, and then is able to actually move forward to something in the future. And that's where you see the hope. Maybe it's not going to be with Lena herself, but it's going to be with somebody, mm-hmm. right? And I think that's what's so encouraging about this particular film. That's why I see it actually as being very hopeful uh, that he has found love in his life through her. And you, you hope it's going to be the two of them together, but somehow that's going to wind up bringing whatever healing he needs and help him to work through it. Yeah, I think, I mean, Adam Sandler's character is kind of interesting because he's you always get the sense that he has the ability to stand up for himself, right? I mean, just the fact that he wears that suit is just kind of a symbol of, well, I, I want to be professional. You know, I want to make something of myself. I want to uh, present myself well. Uh, I mean, who as a, a novelty plunger salesman would feel compelled to wear a suit, I guess? I Maybe, maybe that's me putting down novelty plunger salespeople, which is not my intent. Yeah, that's a market, Matt, that you don't know much about, so you just better watch it, right? <laughs> I know. I I, I, I do uh, admit to ignorance on that. But he, he's not afraid to to stand out, you know, in a way that he thinks is maybe bettering himself, right? And so even even that's just a little symbol of, of maybe where he's heading. Um. But I, let's talk about you know the style of this film. Uh, you you hinted at the uh, the cinematography and how well that works here. Uh, I do wonder if this is where J.J. Abrams learned to to use lens flares. But in this film, it's it's very effective and it's there for a reason. Uh, it it's a visual representation of of the bliss of being in love, right? And there's just some really great anamorphic uh, photography um, in this film. And of course, uh, Robert Ellswood, who's uh, Paul Thomas Anderson's longtime collaborator, uh, shot this and looks great. So uh, definitely a lot to admire in the visuals. Any thoughts there? It's a very unique cinematography. I always really liked how they shot this film. I I like the anamorphic. I like that they uh, approached it with that sense of the scope, right? Because it gives you this interesting playing field. You see the isolation at certain times of how they frame Barry. Uh, You get the sense of him being entrapped at other times, how he's framed with other people around him. So they do a lot of neat stuff with just the compositions. Uh, The kinetic camera work is also very much that drive, that that sense of nervous energy. Uh, It really is effective in that scene where Everything's going wrong. You have the lift that goes into the supplies. You have sister coming back and forth and Lena coming back and forth and everything seems to go wrong. It's sprung out of control. You have the the phone call that's coming to him uh, from the, the woman that's trying to extort the money from the phone sex operator, right? You have all these things happening and the camera just keeps cranking it up, cranking it up, cranking it up. It just gives you that anxiety watching it. 
the lens flares that you talked about, uh, like you said, very appropriate. I mean, they're there. They they give you that sense of the punch drunkness, right? Uh, but even sometimes, you know, when he's in the story, right, we haven't talked about his his scheme that he's going to find this loophole with the healthy choice, uh, um, the healthy choice, oh gosh, what's the word I want here? Pudding. No, well, he, that's, it's just in general, he's going to exploit, he's going to use the pudding to exploit the frequent the flyer miles. They're advertising. Yeah, he's going to get the frequent flyer miles because the pudding cups are individually marketed, right? So he's going to yeah. buy for $3,000, he can get a million frequent flyer miles, right? And so when he's in the store, he's looking around and shopping at the Healthy Choice products, right? The, there's the chicken dinner. He's convinced that's what they're really trying to push is the chicken dinner. Uh, he's looking around to figure out what's the most cost-effective way to do this. Uh, and just the way that the camera's scrolling through all the products, it, they get blurry. And it gets that sense for you as the audience. You're kind of almost intoxicated, a little drunk yourself watching it. And so you have these nice flourishes in the cinematography that are thematically relevant. And that's really what good cinematography should do. It shouldn't just be pretty pictures. It should be telling you something about the state of the characters. Yeah. It should be putting me in touch with them as well. And so this is to be... It was even more effective on the big screen than it is watching it at home because we had just this huge screen watching over you. Uh, You just kind of had that that sense of intoxication in the visual images. So it's a shame, Matt, you said you didn't get to see it in the theater because it really was just a cool experience watching the cinematography work and have an impact on the audience uh, when I saw it back in the theater in 2002. Yeah, especially I, I'm sure it was probably still projected on film at that point too. So, oh, uh, absolutely, yep. Yeah, so that, that's um, I can see that being pretty effective. And it's funny you mentioned the the supermarket sequence. I, that always stood out to me too as kind of a, um, a an oddly shot bit, you know, especially that tracking shot along all the cans and the products and. And it, it almost, I think the uh, the shutter speed was um, at a different angle there because it had kind of this staccato effect, a stuttery effect to it that was kind of disorienting. And um, there's, yeah, there's some really, as you said, there's, there's visuals that are clearly meant to enhance the themes and uh, you don't really see that a whole lot uh, anymore. So there's real language to this film that is pretty unique and, and it's just the whole movie's kind of a fairy tale in some ways there there's a real heightened sense of reality at certain points and and just the use of those um kind of painted transitions uh what's the artist's name again Blake is that the artist's name Jeremy Blake Jeremy Blake okay uh those are neat little bits and it goes hand in hand with the the lens flares and the use of light and and uh, the, I, I think about that shot too in Hawaii, where the silhouette shot, where they they kiss and then all of a sudden everybody shows up and goes by in the background, and and just use of kind of visual cues like that to amplify what's going on on screen. You know, you can do that with sound design, or in this case, we're doing it with visuals. But the sound design is pretty effective here too, and I think the music, uh, John Bryan's score, goes a long way to. Uh, to really heightening that sense of anxiety and and momentum in the visuals too. So um, we should probably mention the score too. Yeah, it's a great score. I, I love it. And you know, just uh, going to the, the artwork by Jeremy Blake, I will admit that's maybe the weak spot of this movie for me. I don't know that it adds a lot. It calls a little too much attention to itself. That Maybe that was what you're thinking of with the being too precious when you mentioned that earlier. Yeah, um, I it, it, I, I agree. I mean, I, I think it's okay. I think, yeah, I think, I think it has its purpose and I understand why it's there, but at times, yeah, that's one element where I could say, well, maybe that's just a little bit too, too much. Um, maybe they're trying a little too hard to be different. And, and that's something about this film that strikes me from time to time is, okay, they're trying a little too hard to be weird or a little too hard to be different. And it's always a tough balance to achieve. Uh, and I, I'm not going to hold it against the film. I, I, I'd rather something try to be different and do something different and seem excessive, I guess, than, than just going for, for ordinary, you know? 
Well, and I think this does mostly succeed in what it is setting out to do. There's a couple moments here, there, you know, people might pick or choose different spots where maybe it's going a little too far or not far enough or whatever it might be. I think the, my take on the, the artwork by Jeremy Blake is Paul Thomas Anderson drops acid. <laughs> that's, that's kind of what I was, I'm thinking uh, as I see those particular scenes. But nonetheless, I think overall it still works very well uh, as a film, as a whole, right? And the score is very effective. Mm-hmm. It does have that, that sense of momentum. It also has that sense of a dream at different points in time. I mean, it does work very nicely. Um, John Bryan really has got a, a good talent here, and he does some really pretty good work on this particular film. Uh, it's not one that you necessarily think about with his other scores, but uh, I really think there's a charm to his score. And maybe that's the best way to, to describe it. It's it's charming. It has a way of winning you over. Um, I guess my question is uh, the song that they take from Popeye, uh, He Needs Me, sung by Shelley Duvall, uh, very prominently featured when he goes to Hawaii, yeah. right? Uh, I like what they how they chose the song. Because I think thematically it does work very well. And it's getting at that point. If he needs her, he needs love, right? He can't be on his own. But is it a little too overplayed on the soundtrack? And is it a little too on the nose thematically to say that? Um, would there have been a better way to maybe dial that back? Or is it one of those things where you say, no, don't be subtle. Go all in. Throw everything you got out there uh, and see what sticks? Is that the kind of cinematic approach here? And is that an effective one? Uh, what are your thoughts on that? Because I, this isn't exactly a subtle film. Yeah, no, I, I, I always found that, that song a little annoying, I guess I, maybe it's the performance of the song. Uh, <laughs> I, I think the lyrics are fine and the song is fine as a song. It's just, uh, it's a little grating. It's a little, overplayed so yeah i mean that's one element worth pointing out that i think probably could have been dialed back a bit uh but it's a film that's it has its excesses right i mean there's i don't think it's interested in being terribly restrained again i kind of look at it as a fairy tale uh and fairy tales are are um they're over the top and they're uh they're archetype filled so that's kind of what i'm seeing here and you know what that's fine i'll go with it i might have chosen a different song the second time you needed a song but uh it's it, it doesn't really stick out as you know ruining anything terribly for me I guess it's a song that, uh, like you say, I, I find it grating, but yeah. for some reason when I watch it in this film, I don't mind it, right? Yeah. If I hear it I, I in, outside of this context, I'd be, ugh, turn the channel, right? Yeah. But in the movie, I'm willing to go with it because it seems to somehow work against all odds uh, in this particular movie. Uh, and so I'm fine with it, but I do think, like to your point, it is very prominent. And there's kind of a point where you go, Boy, they, they, they're still playing it, huh? <laughs> Just dominate the, the film for a little while that you can't help but notice it. Mm-hmm. Um, but again, it's not a subtle film. And so while I do appreciate subtlety, and for the most part, I want my films to be subtle, There's for some reason I have a soft spot for Punch Drunk Love, and I'm willing to say, oh, I don't care. Go ahead, do what you want to do. Uh, it just kind of has that impact on me uh, when I watch it. Um, Maybe we could return back to just Adam Sandler. You, you touched on his performance earlier, Matt. Uh, and I think you were right. When this film came out in 2002, a lot of people talked about it as being like a revelation. Oh, my gosh. Adam Sandler could be a dramatic actor. Adam Sandler shows new depths that he's never shown before. I don't know that the performance shows any new depths. I think the film does. I think the character is allowed depths and pauses to observe things. Uh, that his other movies didn't, but his performance, I think you're right, is not dissimilar from what he had been doing and made him so popular in the 1990s leading into this particular movie. Uh, In many ways, I kind of wondered to what extent was this Paul Thomas Anderson uh, almost just doing a little experiment. You know, he, I'm sure saw the Adam Sandler movies, probably thought of them as light escapist fun and then thought, Hmm, what if I take a character of, Adam Sandler 
and put it into a real world situation, what would that look like? Because I think in many ways that's what this film is, uh, that you take basically a Billy Madison, a Happy Gilmore, uh, I don't remember the Waterboy's actual name was, but uh, you take that character and instead of having being this stupid comedy, put it into something that's a little more grounded and gosh, how would that look, right? They'll, this would be a person that's about ready to break down at any given moment, right? That's mentally, emotionally, completely unstable. And so I think in many ways that's, kind of at the heart of what Paul Thomas Anderson was interested in cinematically. Hmm. What does this look like in a more normal, grounded setting? Uh, how would people relate to this person? How would this person try to run a business or try to make a living, right? Uh, and Adam Sandler, you said, as you mentioned, you know, didn't really take his career down a new road after this. I, th- I think he might have tried a couple of different ventures down this road a little bit, but never really took off anywhere. Um, I'm sure it was just easier to do Jack and Jill, uh, or something of that nature. But it strikes me as this was really just a bit of stunt casting uh, with Adam Sandler in it, right? Uh, it seems like he's going against type, but he's really not. He's just doing his usual thing, but you put him in a different kind of movie, then it looks interesting and fresh and new. Um, so it's I think it works, but I don't know that there's anything particularly revelatory in the performance itself. Yeah, I agree. I I think I think he's really good in the in the movie, and and his his usual routine works very well here. And and I think you're right. I think Paul Thomas Anderson, I guess I called it a transplant earlier. He just wanted to transplant that persona into something into a new context. And and the way you summarize it, I think, is a good way to do so. You know, into a a real world scenario. Granted, a heightened fairy tale like real world scenario uh and and to see how that persona uh what kind of waves that persona makes so uh, yeah i i don't see this as a radical redefinition of his talent or uh i i would hesitate to even call this a dramatic performance really uh, I mean, yeah, there's moments of drama. That, like I said, there's dark elements. But I've always felt that Adam Sandler's persona had a dark side to it, right? And that's kind of part of his comedy is is this side that teeters toward violence or profanity uh, coupled with someone who does care. And that's kind of his usual, uh, his usual persona in his comedic films. So... Um, but you can't you can't say that it's uh, it's not effective here, right? And and I think um, Paul Thomas Anderson knew what he was uh, what he was getting into, and and I think that's why he wanted to work with him. Yeah, I, it's it obviously I, I seem to recall an interview at the time that this came out that Thomas Paul Thomas Anderson made some sort of reference to the fact that he wanted to work with Adam Sandler because of the fact that he'd seen all these other movies and found it interesting to say, well, what makes a character like that tick, Mm -hmm. right? Why would you be that way? And so that's what he wanted to explore. What's a real world explanation to why someone would be so erratic and so violent uh, or prone to violence, I guess you could say, right? Um, And so obviously the, the concept here is these seven sisters that are overbearing. That's kind of the background we get. Uh, that there's something about him. Obviously, you know, it came from his childhood because, you know, they tell the story about calling him gay boy, him throwing the hammer, right? Um, but I just, I, I think he does, it's a perfect example of a, of a director knowing how to use an actor because he does understand, I think, the limitations of Adam Sandler's range. He doesn't try to make him do things he can't do. He sc- casts him well. And even just the scene where he goes in and beats the living hell out of that uh, bathroom in the restaurant, <laughs> you know, it's just, it's funny. It's funny. And then he comes back and yeah, I wasn't in there. You know, it's, it's you know, the, everybody knows that he did it, but no one's able to quite prove it. It's just, it's very humorous how it all plays out, yeah. but also kind of sad, right? You, you feel a certain sorrow for it, that uncomfortableness for it. But I think the reason why all these things wind up working really comes down to Emily Watson's performance. I think she's giving a great performance in this film. Uh, she was really kind of a, a darling of independent cinema in the late 90s and early 2000s. And sadly, never really got major recognition 
uh, from a popular point of view, I think pretty well regarded critically, but never quite made it beyond that uh, more sort of niche market and appreciation. Um, but she gives a great performance as Lena in this, and you can kind of understand why she's willing to keep going with him, and yet she's also not unaware of the fact that there's something off about this guy, right? I mm-hmm. mean, she's knowing she's up for something here, but she's willing to give it a go, and I think that's why you get to start to feel like maybe there's something redeemable in him, because she seems, despite her own damages, her own past problems that are alluded to in dialogue, uh, she seems to be nonetheless fairly well put together, and you get the sense that she could actually help him, and she could maybe make him a better man. Uh, and her performance, I think, is really well calibrated and works beautifully in the film. Yeah, her character is interesting. I and I guess that kind of maybe goes back to my own pessimism, but I always felt that she was someone that was either burned you know, in other relationships or someone that was really looking for someone different, right? Or someone who she felt was the opposite maybe of the kinds of people she had dated or pursued before and sees that in Perry. And and part of me wondered, you know, is this a true connection that they have or is this somehow a defense mechanism for her uh, given the past pain maybe she's been dealing with with other relationships I mean, ultimately, I want to believe that that they have a true connection, right? And they have something special that they're sharing. But again, there's always this kind of dark undercurrent uh, where I kind of wondered, you know, is is this a relationship that can last, or is this kind of a moment of therapy for her, <laughs> uh, finding someone that is so different, or someone that maybe needs to be helped, and maybe she has a need to help someone. And uh, is that the basis for a long-term relationship? Well, maybe it can be, and maybe it's not a bad one. Maybe it's more than a lot of people have. Um, But it's always struck me as, you know, I think there's a bigger question uh, in regards to her own psychology in this relationship that isn't necessarily answered in full, Um, but it's, it's hinted at, you know. Well, again, the fact she's willing to engage in that pillow talk with him tells you there's something a little off with her, right? Yeah. <laughs> uh, and I think, if I recall, she initiated it uh, as in that scene. She re- she initiates the pillow talk with that absurd, violent imagery. Uh, she's the one that starts it all off. And then he takes it to this new level, and she then, instead of getting like, okay, I'm I'm out, you know, indulges in it and kind of finds something delightful in it, right? So, uh, you're right. There is, I think. Clearly, something being alluded to in the past for her that is saying that she's got baggage, right? She's got something that she's bringing here that's going to have to get worked out as well. Uh, But I think her performance really does sell you on the fact that this could possibly work and that there's something real going on between these two characters. Um, So, I yeah, I really liked her performance. Uh, We hit on Philip Seymour Hoffman earlier. I don't know if you have more you want to say about him, just... Obviously now deceased, and sad that we won't ever get to see more performances from him. But yeah. he was another collaborator with uh, a frequent collaborator with Paul Thomas Anderson, and uh, I think just again really develops with minimal screen time a very complete character. I feel like I know Dean Trumbull. I don't feel like I have any ambiguity about who this man is, and it's only in a couple of scenes that you get to really know that whole character. And that's impressive for an actor to be able to do that. Yeah, he's great. I mean, he barely has any screen time, but man, he makes an impact and uh, very funny, I think. I mean, he's a threatening guy, but uh, a very comedic performance in some ways, for sure. Um, Yeah, it it just it makes me sad. You know, when I see him on screen, I appreciate his work and he's he's great, but, uh, it's, it's too bad that he's not with us anymore. Um, but, uh, yeah, definitely it's a shame. It's yeah, a shame. Definitely a highlight uh, of this movie for sure. Well, you know, obviously when I'm, I'm, this is something, you know, Matt, from just our different texts back and forth. But one of my favorite internet gifs is from this movie with Philip Seymour Hoffman when, He's on the phone yelling at Adam Sandler to shut up. Right? Yeah. It's just that, <laughs> shut, 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 shut up. 
shut up, right? Uh, <laughs> I mean, I just, I love to use that as a, as a comedic gif at different points in time uh, because it is just very funny. And the way he just delivers the line is perfect. You know, it just really gets at the sense of the, the rage of this guy, but also in a certain sense, his impotence, right? I mean, ultimately at the end of the day, he's not going to do anything. When he gets confronted by Adam Sandler at the end, he kind of backs down very quickly. It doesn't mess around at all at that point. Once he's finally confronted, you know, you kind of, yeah, this guy's really kind of just a hack, uh, just a scumbag. And that's all he really is. Right. And so it's very, very cool performance. And I get, like I said, it's neat to see an actor be able to create something so thoroughly uh, for a character in such a minimal amount of screen time. Uh, that's an impressive thing to see. Yeah. And I, I didn't realize that uh, until recently that Les- Leslie Jones edited this. I, I never connected her with uh, Paul Thomas Anderson, but I guess she's... Well, she also edited The Master. Yeah, and Inherent Vice, I guess, so... Yeah. So, but yes, from our uh, our previous discussion, we talked about the work on The Thin Red Line, and yep. she also was one of the editors on that and did a lot of work on that, so... Yeah. Uh, and she does a great job here. I mean, really, this is a well-edited film. Yeah, for sure. Uh, that sense of the manicness of it all, but also it slows down at the right times, and... There's some neat shots. I remember, uh, well, the the awkward scene, the most awkward scene in the film probably is when uh, Barry makes the call to the phone sex operator, right? And it's a long take. I mean, it's a really long take. And the way the camera pans, again, framing the isolation for him, right? Showing him, I, I really like how the camera pans over. You see uh, the empty seat at the table next to him. You know, like the, again, just that visual image of him being so alone. Yeah. Uh, but, the way like they let the the shot linger, you know, they don't just cut it away; they let it linger. I mean, that's a that's a deliberate editorial decision that works very well at kind of highlighting the fact that this is a painful experience and it's kind of just uncomfortable and awkward, and you can't really get out of it. And it's it highlights the loneliness and the isolation of the character by not cutting it up with all these different shots, you know, allowing it to play out in one take. Sometimes you know, the best thing an editor can do is not cut, right? And she did that in that scene, and that's really a great thing. It's another little old taxi driver reference, I think, too. Yeah, it may well be, yes. Like I said, I, I didn't until recently make the association of those two films, but I do think that there is a lot going on between them. And you know, Anderson, certainly being a, a fan of the 70s cinema, would have been very much influenced by Scorsese and his work in that era. Mm-hmm. Well, maybe we could turn our attention now to the actual release by Criterion. Uh, so this came out in 2016. Uh, and actually, I was, before this came out, uh, or was announced that it was going to be coming out, you know, we were thinking, Matt, we talked about doing sort of our Christmas wish list every year. Yeah. And uh, this was actually going to be my Christmas wish list for that year. And then, oh, they announced it for coming out already. So I go, oh, I don't have to do that. So, um uh, kind of a neat little thing because I, I really was hoping that this would eventually be on the Criterion Collection uh, as just this little charming movie and maybe we could get it some new fanfare and a new uh, reputation with some people who may have forgotten about it. Mm-hmm. Uh, but it's it's a very good release. I, I like the visuals. I like the transfer. Uh, a lot of the DVD extras uh, that were from its previous release are carried over. Uh, and then there's a couple new interviews uh, there's a new interview with John Bryan with about the music, uh, and then there's also an interview about Jeremy Blake's art uh, that kind of added to it as well. And then the, the highlight for me was just uh, seeing the the Cannes interviews. Right, Paul Thomas Anderson won the Best Director Award at Cannes for this, uh, and just seeing him the the some of the cast uh, talking about it, uh, and again that sense of how interesting it must have been for everybody to see his newest film starring Adam Sandler. Uh, kind of all these years later, it's been forgotten about, but at the time, it was sort of a little bit of a thing uh, in the film world that this happened. Um, so uh, a good collection of extras. Um, if I'm not mistaken, though, you don't have the Blu-ray. Is that right? Yeah, I, I, I don't have it, no. I wouldn't mind picking it up. So hanging on to the old Superbit disc? Yeah, I've still got the old DVD, uh, which is kind of a neat little set, actually. It's a nice uh, digipack, and I think it has... I want to say there were some art cards in there. I, I'd have to pull it off the shelf, but um, it, that was not a bad release at the time. No, it was a very good one, I remember. Um, actually, I like the cover art for that 
DVD more than I like the cover art for the Criterion release. Yeah. So. Yeah, the cover is a little plain. I mean, it's just a photograph pretty much on the Criterion. Right. Well, it's the ending shot, right? Yeah. The two of them at the harmonium. So, Well, Matt, uh, what is your take? Does this belong in the Criterion collection? Oh, it's kind of a tough one, actually. I, I hmm, it's hard to say. I, I, I like the film. I mean, I think it's a good film. Uh, you know, I, I, I guess you could say it's worth inclusion, based on the just the idea that you know, here's a film that takes a, a known actor and kind of puts him in a different scenario which doesn't happen terribly often, uh, or at least doesn't happen successfully terribly often. And I, Paul Thomas Anderson, I mean, he's an important filmmaker. Nice to have him in the collection here. Um, I think he's been involved with some other supplemental cr- um, criterion uh, features on, on some other releases before, but uh, sure, why not? Put it in. Uh, it's It's worth people's time. Why not is... One of the most ringing endorsements you could ever give to a decision, for sure. <laughs> well, it's hard, it's hard for me to justify it more than that. I guess I, I, if you really had to press me and say, is this like an important film deserves to be preserved? And um, I, I don't know. It's probably maybe not. I'm kind of fifty fifty. This is me being fifty fifty. I guess I, I like the film, so because of that and that selfish motivation, I'll say yes. <laughs> I'm going to say yes as well. Uh, There's obviously that personal affinity, and I think sometimes you you want movies that you love to be loved by other people, and that's why you you show them to friends or you you, uh, make it a point to try to promote them. And so to have it in that sense, there's that. But uh, actually, I think the real reason why I'd say say this merits being in the Criterion Collection isn't that, or isn't even because of the Adam Sandler being in an unusual circumstance. I think it's actually more to do with the fact that it's uh, as a genre piece. If you look at it as an example of the romantic comedy genre, uh, I think it stands as an important film on that of showing how you can do it in a very unique and absurd, surreal kind of way. It certainly didn't make a big impact in terms of influence on future films. As far as I'm aware, nobody's coming and talking about Punch Drunk Love anymore. But I do think that it stands as a unique example of that genre, which is a perennial genre. And it's important, I think, to highlight the anomalies to something that people know so very well. And so for that reason, I'd say it deserves to be in the punch, uh, the Criterion Collection. Uh, so that'd be my vote as well. Maybe a little more enthusiastic than yours, uh, but uh, not uh, that I would say this is obviously a slam dunk. You could not have it be in the collection, but I, I'm glad it is. I, I'm glad that it's there, and I'm glad to have a copy of it. And with that, we'll close tonight's conversation. We hope you'll join us next month as we pick our Christmas wish list items, where Matt and I will choose a contemporary as well as classic film that we both think belongs in the Criterion Collection. Thank you, and keep collecting.